My name's Dave. For those of you who I don't know, uh, afterwards do come and say hi when we're having a cup of tea. Um, as Kate said, we're looking at our second act of Ruth today. The book of Ruth's got four chapters, four acts, um, and Jill came and spoke last week, and Jill spoke about the sort of theme that comes out of that first act, that first chapter of Ruth, loyalty. Um, and so it's probably worth not recapping everything that Jill said. You can download it on the website uh, to get all the, the detail of it. But just recapping the story very slightly in chapter one, just so we know where we are for chapter two. So in chapter one, um, this book of Ruth is about a, a family, um, Naomi and her husband, Eli Melek, who was mentioned in that passage we read, and their two sons, Marlon and Killian. Um, and they live in Bethlehem, in Judah, and there's a famine. And they decide they've got to leave because there's no food to eat. And so they set up for a place called Moab. Now, Jill talked to us a bit about this last week, but that was a big decision for them to make. Um, you probably know, littered through the Old Testament, you don't need to read very much, but you find sentences that talk about the animosity that there was between the Jews and the Moabites, and the Jews and other people groups around them, actually, but particularly the Moabites. This would have been a big decision for them to have to disappear off to live in Moab, um, and not something that would have made them hugely popular. Anyway, they end up living in Moab. The two sons, uh, Marlon and Killian, get married. Marlon marries a lady called Ruth, a Moabite lady called Ruth, and Killian marries a Moabite lady called Orpah. Um, and they live in Moab for a bit, and then tragedy strikes. And Jill told us last week that all three of the men in the family die. Uh, so the husband, Naomi's husband, and her two sons, they all die. And so these three women are left on their own, in destitution, really, in, in Moab. At this point, the famine in Judah is finished, and so Naomi and the two daughters-in-law take the decision to, to go back to Bethlehem to go back to Judah. And so they set off, and then there's this great sort of picture when they're, I guess, halfway along the road on the way back to Bethlehem, where Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, you don't have to come with me. Um, you don't have to stick with me through this. Like, you're Moabite women, and we're going to get back to a place and a people that don't really like Moabite women very much. You're not going to be treated well if you come back with me. You don't have to stick with me. And there's this big scene that Jill talked us through last week, where they're on the road, and they're you know, in tears and trying to work out what to do. And Orpah ultimately decides to go back to Moab and just start life again, really get married again in, in Moab, just start a new life in Moab. Ruth, on the other hand, clings to Naomi. And there's this famous bit where she says, where you go, I'll go, your God's my God from now on. And, and Ruth goes off with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And so the end of Act 1, Chapter 1, is Ruth, um, the Moabite lady, and Naomi are back in Bethlehem. And so we pick the story up in chapter 2. But before we just dig into um, Act 2 a bit, um, just two points really to say about this whole book. Um, one is, I mean the jury's out, but it's not necessarily true. It's a story that's put into the Bible to make a point. It's almost like a parable. Um, the characters in the story actually, interestingly, have all got names that mean stuff in the story. So um, uh, Elimelech, the, Naomi's husband, is called God is King. Naomi's called Pleasing. Their two sons that die are called Sickness and Wasting. I mean, the, the, the characters in this story have all got names that mean stuff in relation to the story. And some of the history that's written in the story is sort of picked from different places in the Bible, from different eras. Some of the law that it talks about is from slightly different places, different contexts. It feels a bit like a story that's been sort of bolted together in different ways and some characters put into it to make a point. 
And so I guess our job is to try and work out what that point is and why it's there. Second thing to say about um, the book of Ruth is that, again, the jury's out on when it was written and by whom. Um, It's anonymous in one sense. Some people think that it was written sort of 1,000 BC and it was written around the time of King David and it, it was sort of something to do with the line of King David and justifying King David and his you know, um, you probably know, and we'll talk about this in later weeks, but that Ruth is a, a great-grandparent of King David, according to a genealogy. Um, so it could be to do with that. We're not going to talk about that. Others think that it could have been written almost 600 years later, more like sort of 500 BC, after the Jews have been off to exile in Babylon, and they're now back rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And there are these two characters, Ezra and Nehemiah, who come back to help sort of get the Jews back on track to start rebuilding the temple, to start building back what was being destroyed when people were exiled in Babylon. And Ezra and Nehemiah become pretty hardline in some respects. They want to start protecting the purity of the Jewish family. They want to look inwards a bit, be a bit insular, not care too much about the foreigners around them and actually don't want the Jewish people to be diluted by the world around them. They want to get the Jews back on track as they see it and they sort of want to protect the boundary and there's some thought that this book could have been written as a bit of a, a response a reaction to Ezra and Nehemiah um, and we'll come on and look, look at that in a little bit in a bit so chapter two um, Naomi and Ruth are now in Bethlehem and we just read that that long reading from chapter two in brief so Naomi and, uh, um, and Ruth are in, in Bethlehem and they're you know, in that culture, having men around actually meant um, that you were safe and that you've got breadwinners in the family and all of those sorts of things. They were living in destitution. They had a bit of land, which they're probably going to have to sell, um, but they're living in pretty much destitution in poverty. Ruth, a Moabite woman living in a land which probably doesn't like her too much. Um, Ruth decides to go off into the fields um, to, to try and get some food. And it talks about her gleaning. Um, I don't know if you've seen that concept in in the Bible, but gleaning is this um, concept that was written into Jewish law where people who owned fields in this agrarian society in law were told to leave a bit aside, not to take it all. Leave some of it round the edge of the field. Perhaps don't harvest that small field over there that you don't actually need to. When you drop some of your crops, leave it behind. It's called gleaning and then the poor, um, strangers, foreigners, people who were just visiting for a bit, could come and take their fair share of the crop too. And so Ruth was out in the field behind the harvesters as a poor woman collecting some of the sort of left-behind bits of crops, the bit that weren't taken. And she's in the field doing this, and um, the, one of the characters of this story, Boaz, pitches up. Um, and Boaz comes and greets his workers you see there he comes and greets his workers in quite a friendly way. He seems like quite a nice guy. And he pitches up and he notices Ruth working in the field and asks his chief harvester, who's this new lady working in the field? And the chief harvester says that this is Ruth and she's a Moabite woman. She's from Moab. And her mother-in-law is Naomi and they've just arrived back in town. Now at that moment, Boaz would have known something really important. Boaz would have known that he was a close family relation of Naomi, of Elimelech. He was a close family relation. And he was something called, you'll have seen a strange phrase in that passage, something called a guardian redeemer. Um, He would have known that as a close family relation, he had some responsibilities and duties to that family, to look after them, to restore them, to help them get back on their feet. 
He would have known that. He was something called a guardian redeemer. We'll come back to that in a minute. Anyway, so Boaz is very generous and very kind to Ruth. He says, you'll be safe in my field. I'll make sure nobody hurts you. So, I mean, immediately you can read in that passage that as a Moabite woman, you probably weren't safe. He was having to tell his employees not to hurt this person. Um, So he said, you'll be safe in my field. Stay here, but don't go elsewhere. I'll make sure that you can pick up the crops. I'll make sure there's enough for you. In fact, I'll make sure there's lots for you. Come and eat with us. Naomi, uh, sorry, Ruth goes and eats with Boaz um, and has a meal. And he gives her lots. And she takes it home to her mother-in-law at the end of the day. And she says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, I met this guy called Boaz and he's filled my bag up with wheat and barley and I sat and ate with him and he was really generous and kind to me. And at the end of the story, Naomi explains to Ruth that this guy is our family relative. He's got some duties and responsibilities to us because he's our guardian redeemer. And Act 2 finishes on that cliffhanger, really, where we find out that this guy is, has a responsibility to the family. I want to say a whole range of things about um, generosity, really. I think what pours out of this story is generosity, but in some different ways. And the first thing I'd like to just talk about briefly is this idea of being a guardian redeemer. Um, the Hebrew word for this is goel, G-O apostrophe E-L, goel. Um, and it means um, restorer. It's a close family relation who would look out for a family, who would protect a family, who would help when things had gone wrong. So Goel's um, guardian redeemers were responsible for things like if somebody had got into slavery, helping them out of slavery. If a family had had to sell a piece of land because they'd got into difficult times to help buy that piece of land back. We'll talk about this next week, but sometimes they were responsible for marrying the widows of their brothers, if that's what came up. They were responsible for protecting, looking after, being kind to, restoring a family. And so I guess I got to thinking as I read that story, like on the face of it, Boaz looks like this really generous guy. Like you read through it and he's kind and he lets Ruth come and eat with him and he gives her loads of stuff and he sends her on away and he makes sure she's not harmed and you sort of read Boaz and say, well, he's this sort of a really kind, uh, generous man. And a bit of me read the story and thought, is he doing that because he's genuinely being generous or because he knows he's got this duty and responsibility? Is he doing it because he's just under some legal obligation? If he's under some legal obligation to do this as a guardian redeemer, is he still being generous? If he's doing it because it comes out of an obligation, a duty, is it still generous or not? Um, And I guess as I read the story, he seems to go out of his way to be particularly kind and he seems to be nice to his workers, but it does seem to be something to do with this obligation. And then the next bit of me thought, does that matter? Um, Like when we talk about uh, sort of virtues and character traits and all of those sorts of things, they only really make a difference when it hits the ground in practice. Like if we've got all the right rhetoric about what type of person we want to be, that's great, but unless it actually materialises in an act or in the way we treat other people, what does it matter? And Boaz is actually genuinely being generous in this situation. And it got me on to thinking this thing. We often talk in this church, you'd have probably heard Steve talk about a couple of different types of ethics that we talk about a lot. One's called deontological ethics, and that's a, a way of making decisions, a way of making ethical choices based around rules, about laws. So you've got your sort of framework of rules over here, 
Um, and as you've got to make a choice, as you've got to make an ethical decision, you go and look at your rules and you find the rule that relates to that particular thing and then you make the choice based on what the rule tells you to do. And that's great, but what happens when you come across a situation where there isn't a rule? Or what happens when you come across situations where perhaps the rules contradict one another? What are you going to do then? Who knows? We talk a bit about virtue ethics as almost a different type of making ethical choices. Virtue ethics is quite different. Virtue ethics says have a sort of basis of virtues in your life. So they might be um, faithfulness, kindness, generosity might be my virtues. And when I've got to make choices, I go back to my virtues and I say, in this instance, how can I be most faithful, most generous and most kind? And I sort of refer back to my virtues the whole time to make my ethical choices. And you know, in this church, and I guess in Oasis in general, we talk an awful lot about um, being generous because it just sort of wells up out of us. There's this like fire inside us that makes us be generous, that is the thing that just sort of pours out of us because it's become second nature. We want to do it because it's like in us, not because we're just following some rules, right? And I think that's fantastic and really important. But I wonder whether we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater slightly by saying let's not have any framework or rules at all. And so this story made me really interested that it's, like I said, it's a story in the Bible to make a point and it's talking about some of the sort of social constructs that were built into the Jewish story that were generous. They were about being generous and restoring and being a guardian, protector and redeemer to people. They were social things that were built into the fabric of society to help people be more generous. So I guess I got to thinking, perhaps some of those rules, those duties, those responsibilities were actually helpful. They actually sort of helped us learn to be more generous. They helped Boaz learn to be more generous. You've got this duty, this responsibility, and if you do it, you'll learn to be more generous in your life. We always say, don't we, that like, if you want to be generous, you've got to practice doing it even when you don't want to. So like, if you want to be generous, you've got to pay for the drink at the pub even when you feel like you've run out of money that week. Or you've got to give more of your time than you feel like you've got to give. And if you practice doing it even when you don't necessarily want to, it will just become part of who you are in time. Well, I wonder whether some of these social constructs that were built into Jewish society were a bit like that. It's like practice these rules and ultimately you'll become a people who are generous. And so I think it's interesting that this story talks about two different bits of sort of social fabric that are about be generous to others, um, both in terms of gleaning, and we'll come on and talk about that in a moment, but also about this guardian redeemer, protect other people. God's people, there's some stuff built into the way they operate that says be generous to one another. And I guess... I wondered just in our context, in our sort of 21st century society, I think we perhaps shy away from like duties and responsibilities and obligations, feeling like they're dirty words in one sense. But what would it look like for us as a community if there were a, full, a few more sort of duties and responsibilities put back in, not in an overbearing way, but let me give you a couple of examples. And I'm not suggesting we do this, but like as a church community, we don't say let's tithe and it's 10% and, and there's a sort of duty and responsibility around that. And I think probably that's quite right and we probably shouldn't. But perhaps we've also lost something. Perhaps if I felt that obligation, that responsibility, I would practice a bit more being generous so that it became second nature to me. Or what about our duties and responsibilities to the children and young people in this church? We don't put that on people and I don't think we should. 
but do we have some? And what about my duty and responsibility to my next door neighbour? And where are the bits of social fabric that just help me get onto the ladder of learning to be more generous, learning to be more other-centred, so it naturally happens? So I guess first thing is, I just want to leave you with a question. I don't know the answer, frankly, but what are the bits of social sort of responsibility duty that perhaps we've completely thrown out the baby with the bathwater that we maybe need to put back into our lives as a community or individuals? What are those bits of responsibility that perhaps we should have and we've um, ditched a bit as a society? That's the first question. Second thing I want to talk to you about is gleaning. So gleaning... This concept um, of leaving some of the harvest um, is written in the Jewish law. Let me just read you this bit from, it's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but here's Deuteronomy. Um, it's chapter 24, verse 19. It says, when you're harvesting in your field and overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from the trees, do not go back over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. There's bits of law written into the Jewish story which are really generous. It's saying leave stuff for other people, don't take it all. So gleaning is this concept where you leave some in your field, you just don't take it all. And built into it is this sense that it was never yours in the first place. It's all God's. Take some of it, because that's quite right. Take some of it, but you don't need to take it all. Leave some of it. Leave some around the edges. Leave some in the other fields. Don't collect it all. And it's not a handout either. So it's not a handout to people. It's just leave some of it, and then other people can come and take their share of this too. And I think that's really interesting, because I, I think in our society, we're taught to take it all. Take it all. Get as much money as you can. Take it all. Get consumed. Get more and more and more. Take it all. And then, if we can persuade each other, if I can persuade myself, perhaps I can be generous with my stuff and I can benevolently bestow it onto other people. So I take it all and then I say, you're deserving so I can be generous to you and you're not deserving so I won't be generous to you and perhaps you are so I might be generous to you. But I think our rhetoric is take it all and then think about what we do with it. And I think this Jewish concept says, just don't take it all. You don't need it all. Leave some for others. And again, I don't know the answer to this question, but what would it look like in our context if we didn't take it all always? Do I get to the end of the month and when I get my paycheck think, this is not really mine, it's God's. I don't need it all for me. Could I leave some aside where it's not for me? It's not mine. I could leave it to create opportunity for other people. I don't really get a choice about who those other people are, and that's fine. It shouldn't be on me to be like benevolent to others, should it? I don't need it all. Do I ever get to the month and think that about my money? Where I live, do I think, it's not really my house, it's God's. I don't need it all. What could I do to create opportunity for others? Do I get to, with my relationship with my friendship groups, where I think, I don't need it all. I could help, I could leave some space for others to create opportunity. And I, I think this story is about not taking it all in the first place. And I think that it's about um, leaving opportunity for others as opposed to handouts for others. So, for instance, um, you know, if you want to create opportunity, we were talking just before the service about the, the weekend. Perhaps at the end of the month, I could leave some money aside 
and I could think, I'm going to specifically keep that for just creating opportunities for others. Perhaps I could be paying for some other people to have places at the church weekend. Perhaps I could support somebody who's in particular need and needs a bit of a, a help at that moment. Perhaps, perhaps I could say to myself, don't take it all, leave some aside to create opportunities for others. If I was running a business, is my first motivation create as much wealth as I can and then perhaps in the wake of my business some other people will get jobs and money? Or is my motivation to create opportunity for other people? The reason I'm here and doing this is to create opportunity for others. I think that concept of creating opportunity and not handouts is really important. I think sometimes people do need just emergency support and that's, that's right and, and great. But I think creating opportunity is the real thing that transforms people's lives. Um, I know looking around our hubs in Oasis, you may not know this, but Oasis works in loads of communities around the UK and in some of our other hubs. And so I'm thinking of our hub in North Bristol. There's a lady called Ashlyn there who's our sort of community worker in North Bristol. And she's working with the ladies in the community, some of the parents from the school, and they've just together opened a community shop. And it's a craft workshop. So at the back of the shop, um, they make crafts together and then they sell them in the front of the shop. And just the fact that this is opportunity and not handout, and this actually is a really transformational tool in the lives of all of those people. Um, in Birmingham, there's a lady called Angie that set up a couple of social enterprises. Um, one is a cookery uh, social enterprise where it's a really cosmopolitan bit of Birmingham. And some of the women from the community, they go and cook dishes from their different um, places they're from in the world, and they go and do dinner parties in people's houses and, you know, sell that service. And again, it's creating opportunity and not dependency and handout. Um, that's got its place, but I think opportunity is a really important thing. I think this story of gleaning is a bit about that. Don't take it all and leave opportunity for others to get their fair share too. Thirdly, if you do think this story is a reaction to Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah are back in Jerusalem after they've been exiled to Babylon and they're back and they're rebuilding the temple. Everything's gone wrong and they're having to put it right again. And so they're saying to the Jewish people, we need to protect the boundary a bit. Things have gone wrong and we've diluted the Jewish culture, almost ethnicity, perhaps religion too. And they say to people, the final chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13, talks a bit about, well, therefore, how should we deal with others, the foreigners, the people in our midst that don't look quite like us, they're a bit different to us. And there's this quite hard line passage in the end of um, Nehemiah, it's also in Ezra too, but about not mixing with the foreigners, not getting married to the foreigners, actually being careful that we need to patrol the boundaries of the Jewish people a bit better than we have done. And I think this story is fantastically generous in that case because it's the dissenting voice. It says, I know Ezra and Nehemiah are saying that, but remember God is the God of all people, including Ruth the Moabite. In the Bible, there's this contradictory dissenting voice that says they've got loads right, but on this point, remember God is the God of all people. God is the God who wants to be generous to all people. They're saying be Gen they're saying be insular and this story says be generous they're saying don't treat the f don't mix with the foreigners this story says deal with the person in front of you not where they're from god is the god of all people how does that play out for us i mean there's some really obvious parallels out there there's the sort of macro parallels you know as we've been thinking in the last year about brexit and what we want to be as a nation are we us first looking inwards 
or are we dealing with people because they're people? Um, as we think about how we vote in the general election, how does that play out for us? There are all sorts of macro parallels for what that means to be a people that actually see others first just because they're human beings. But also I think it plays out for us as individuals. What does it mean to proactively care for and be about the other, be generous to the people that don't look like us, that don't sound like us, that aren't the same age as us, that aren't the people in our same social group, that aren't the people that have the same type of jobs as us? What does that mean for us here in this community in terms of like my friendship groups, my cliques? Do we proactively live out the generous message of Ruth, which is include the other, include people that don't look like you, include the people that perhaps society says don't include? What does that mean for like the people I hang out with when we have coffee afterwards? What does that mean to us in terms of like when we have a party, who we invite to it? What, what does it mean for that generous inclusion where we proactively do that in our day-to-day -day lives as well as just think about it on a macro level. I think, to recap really, this story is a story of generosity. It's a story of generosity that is sort of built into the structures of the Jewish fabric. It's God saying to his people, actually build this into your lives a bit. So you practice it and then you become it. It's a generous story that says, don't take it all in the first place. It's not your job to bestow benevolence to people. Just don't take it all in the first place. Be generous by not taking it all. And it's a story that's generous and says, proactively include others, even when you're told not to. Proactively include others. I think it's a fantastic story. We're going to come on next week to talk about Act number three, which gives us even more context to some of that. But I'm going to stop there, and I want to pray for you around those three themes, if that's okay. Lord God, how, thank you for this dissenting voice in the Bible, this story that's there to make a point to us. Thank you for this story that teaches us about generosity. Lord, help us into our lives, into our community together to build structures that help us to be more generous, that help us to learn to have generous spirit. Lord, thank you as well and help us to learn how to leave some on the field, not to take it all. Lord, help us to understand that it's not all ours. We can leave some, that's fine. And Lord, finally, help us to be an inclusive community together. Help us to include each other day to day, both in big ways and in small ways. Lord, thank you for this fantastic story of generosity. Amen.